Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series supported by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. Today I'm talking to Philip Alston, a professor of international law at New York University and the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. The United Nations adopted the Sustainable Development Goals in 2015. They aim to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. The Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, provide policy objectives for countries to aspire to meet over a number of years. SDG Goal 1 is to end poverty in all its forms, everywhere. And this goal highlights many of the ways that economic and human rights issues are intertwined. Institutions, countries, and individuals vary widely in how they understand and aim to solve the problem of poverty. Is it fundamentally an economic issue, or is it a social one? Poverty stands in the way of people enjoying many of their basic human rights, such as the right to an adequate standard of living. It can also be the product of violations of certain rights, like the right to free choice of employment or to education. Understanding the full range of rights implicated in the issue of global poverty requires bridging questions of human rights law and economic development. In order to better understand certain pressing human rights concerns, the United Nations Human Rights Council has a mandate to appoint special investigators, known as special rapporteurs, on specific issues. Special rapporteurs are independent experts who often conduct research on human rights violations in different countries and contexts, and they report back to the United Nations with their findings. There are special rapporteurs on countries and on themes, and one of those themes is extreme poverty and human rights. The UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty, Philip Alston, is here with me today on Skype, and he'll be able to tell us a little bit more about poverty as a human rights issue and what the SDGs can or can't do about it. So thanks for joining me, Philip. My pleasure. Maybe you could start by telling me about how you became a UN Special Rapporteur. In the old days, <laughs> individuals were nominated by governments, um, or by NGOs, and the process was quite opaque. Uh, today, it's much more organized. There's a call for nominations. Individuals put themselves forward. Uh, there's a process whereby a shortlist is drawn up, those people are interviewed, and the president of the Human Rights Council then decides to nominate a particular individual to the job. When and why did extreme poverty become an issue for a UN Special Rapporteur? Back in the early 1990s, a number of NGOs, and particularly one called uh, ATD Carmonde, uh, which is based in France but uh, has a global presence, um, pressed very hard to extend the range of UN human rights interests to cover extreme poverty. Uh, the position was initially that of an independent expert and then it uh, evolved into a special rapporteur position by 1998. 
So it's been going now, even in its present form, for some 20 years. So has poverty always been considered a human rights concern? Poverty itself is often and still today considered to be uh, just a, a fate, a destiny. There's nothing much that one can do about it. Uh, the biblical uh, comment that uh, the poor shall forever be with us tends to actually be an accurate reflection of the views that many people, even in the human rights field, have. In other words, you can actually do something concrete about killings or torture, but poverty, well, it's just an endemic problem which can't really be solved by any specific action. So, therefore, let's not give it uh, too much attention, leave it to others. And, of course, uh, the pushback against that is to say that poverty is a political choice that governments make. Um, it's a condition that is totally uh, debilitating and even dehumanizing. Uh, and it's something that the human rights community can and should be addressing squarely. What's the difference between extreme poverty and poverty in general? Is there a difference? Well, Yes and no. Um, there are, according to the World Bank, very specific benchmarks um, in terms of uh, the difference between living in poverty and living in extreme poverty, and they attach a dollar value to those two different conditions, and that then leads to a, a figure of the number of hundreds of millions of people who are um, thus classified. But um, more broadly, most organizations working on poverty don't uh, let themselves be guided just by that dollar figure and instead uh, pursue what they call a multi-dimensional approach to poverty, uh, where you take account of a much uh, broader range of factors beyond uh, income or money available per day. Um, it is true that people who are living in, quote, extreme poverty are particularly badly off, but obviously it's part of a spectrum uh, so that anyone living in poverty is very readily able to slip into the extreme end of it. And uh, on the other side, there are a great many people who are simply classified as low income but not poor, who also are increasingly precarious and thus at risk of falling into the poverty category. Could you explain a little bit, Philip, about how poverty and human rights are connected? So how is poverty a human rights issue? I think for those of us who think in terms of economic and social rights, and it has to be said that there are still a great many people, uh, even in the human rights community, who don't uh, attach um, fundamental importance to those rights. Uh, but for those who do, poverty clearly is a violation in the sense that people don't have enough food to eat. They don't have enough money to send their children happily and easily to school. Uh, they certainly don't have decent um, housing, shelter and so on. So that's always been fairly straightforward. What I think has been underestimated is the extent to which there's a very direct link between the violation of civil and political rights and being poor. 
the poor are overwhelmingly the victims of torture. Wealthy people are generally not tortured, except for a few prominent political people. But people living in slums and so on are very much at the mercy of the day-to-day predations of security forces and police and others. Um, Similarly, the poor are less likely to be able to vote uh, for a whole range of reasons. Uh, They are more likely to be imprisoned uh, for debt or for very minor offences that would never be uh, brought against wealthier people. And so the realisation, I think, today is that poverty actually is almost invariably going to lead to significant violations of standard civil and political rights. Do you find that there are connections between the work you've done on other issues like extrajudicial executions and poverty? Well, I think I've always believed that human rights violations are generally uh, systemic. In other words, they are a product of the overall system. Uh, It's true, we find the occasional sadist um, who likes beating people up or enjoys killing or whatever. But for the most part, it's a systemic problem. And certainly when I was special rapporteur on extrajudicial executions, I realized very early on that simply making recommendations that the government should stop doing this or the police should get more training or an international treaty should be ratified Um, was far from being sufficient in order to address those problems. One had to ask why it was happening within the society and what deeper measures needed to be taken. And I think in that regard, there are obviously important um, similarities between the two sets of issues. So you were appointed in 2014, and the UN Sustainable Development Goals were adopted in 2015. How did you personally receive those goals, and do they have relevance in your work as a special rapporteur? Well, I was involved um, in the um, work to implement the earlier set of goals, the Millennium Development Goals. I was the advisor to the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. And I felt that those goals had played an important part. I suggested that human rights groups should take those goals up and uh, really push them, uh, although that never really happened. So certainly the hope when the SDGs were being drafted uh, was that there would be a greater set of links, a greater synergy between the two areas. Um, That didn't get off to a particularly good start because in the drafting process there was great resistance to almost any mention of human rights and it was only at the uh, final stages that a number of references were included. Uh, I still wouldn't say that the SDGs are especially um, human rights friendly Um, And I also wouldn't say that the framework that's been set up for monitoring the SDGs and promoting them uh, is particularly human rights conscious. Um, That uh, lessens the uh, direct relevance of the SDGs in the human rights context, but should, of course, just mean that the challenge is all the greater 
for those working on these issues to insist that there is uh, an essential complementarity between rights and development. Um, so the SDGs do no doubt in some contexts where one can't even mention human rights uh, provide an important entry point for raising certain issues, for trying to give prominence to particular goals. Um, and I think they are uh, potentially very useful. Uh, I think what's been done so far in terms of implementation, the role played by the high-level political forum, the sort of scrutiny that states' reports are getting, uh, have been very disappointing. Um, but uh, that is no reason to give up on the process. I suppose it should mean that we double down in our efforts. Why was there so much resistance to including human rights language in the SDGs? Well, you've got a number of countries um, led by China, but uh, no shortage of others these days um, who think that these issues should be kept quite separate. They don't really want the human rights um, area to be expanded. They don't want to talk about issues that they consider to be political. Uh, and they would rather pursue what they see as apolitical goals uh, in the SDG context. But of course, all of these things are a matter of politics. There's absolutely no alternative to that. What are some of the shortcomings you've identified in the implementation of the SDGs? Well, I think the most important thing for me, and this, of course, is the bedrock of human rights as well, uh, is the notion of accountability. Um, in other words, if uh, SDGs are not being met, if the necessary steps that governments have so proudly proclaimed are not being taken, then what can be done? But during the drafting process, uh, a number of governments made it very clear, as one senior official put it to me at the time, that one cannot even use the word accountability. The notion is unacceptable. And so that means you've got a set of goals which governments can posture about, but they will not really set up any structures which will uh, hold them to account. In other words, if they are not making progress on the various goals, uh, attention should be drawn to that by the international community because these really are basic and essential goals uh, they're not just um, desirable add-ons, uh, but I think the absence of meaningful accountability uh, to this point is a very significant disappointment. Could you talk a little bit about how economic development agendas have typically addressed poverty? First of all, of course, there's been a very long tradition um, of trickle-down economics, uh, the assumption which really uh, in many ways seems to be quite dominant today in the neoliberal approach that if there's enough wealth created at the top that will eventually help people at the bottom. Uh, that's uh, always been problematic. Uh, it never trickles down in a meaningful way to those at the bottom. The other problem with the uh, development agenda I think is that um, Individuals are not seen as the main focus, but rather it's uh, just a sort of aggregated set of policies, which is understandable, but that means that a lot of individuals are left by the wayside. More importantly, 
development has, although many specialists would deny this, uh, has often been approached uh, in a very top-down way that we experts will determine what these people need and we'll try to give it to them. Uh, the human rights approach to development, I think, is fundamentally different in the sense that it seeks to empower people, uh, those who are living in poverty and others, uh, by insisting that even though they're poor, even though they may even be stigmatized and even despised in their communities because often these people are members of minority groups and others who are badly treated uh, as a general rule, um, they still have rights. They have a right to education. They have a right to housing. And I think that notion is far more empowering than saying, uh, don't you worry, the government will eventually come up with some scheme that will help you and your family. Um, so I think there's continuing uh, reluctance on the part of the development community uh, to really adopting that empowering approach um, and trying to emphasize that uh, people actually have rights uh, which need to be uh, respected and promoted. So at that top-down level that you mentioned, what institutions are the decision makers? Who typically has been responsible for responding to the issues at stake in SDG Goal 1 to end poverty? These things always depend very much on where the money is. Uh, it's no accident that the UN... Uh, is churning out all of the policy recommendations and so on, but has very little money. Uh, the major source of funding is going to be the World Bank, and a key determinant will also be the role played by the IMF in terms of its um, support or otherwise for the fiscal policies being pursued by the relevant country, which in turn... Uh, frame the envelope which is going to be available to uh, address poverty and uh, social protection issues. Uh, so the World Bank and the IMF play an outsized role in all of this. You recently released a report on the IMF and social protection. Where did the impetus for that report come from? I think that the IMF is ultimately the most important player uh, in terms of determining whether or not a country that has a significant population of poor people uh, will be able or be prepared to devote significant and sufficient resources to trying to get those people out of poverty. Uh, the fund uh, can support or can uh, fail to support uh, proposals that governments put forward. And in the absence of support, it's very difficult for a large number of governments uh, to move ahead. So the IMF plays a, a really central role in all of this. So once you've written a report like this, what does it accomplish? What's the goal or purpose of the report? Well, it doesn't have a single purpose. Uh, the IMF is a an institution that is not known for listening to uh, to outside uh, commentary, let alone criticism. 
Um, it has a very particular um, ideological line that it has pursued quite rigidly, despite uh, its own assertions that, in fact, it's changed a lot over the years. Um, and I think it's very important both for those working within the organization to know that there are uh, alternative perspectives which are well-founded, but probably more importantly for outsiders to start to understand the role that the fund plays and to bring more pressure to bear. Ideally, of course, governments, because they're the ones who really control the policies pursued in the IMF, would be taking account of uh, this sort of reporting. But the big problem here is the well-known one of siloing of different interests. So human rights reports are read by the human rights parts of government uh, and IMF reports and policies are looked at by the financial uh, parts, the treasury, the finance ministry and so on. Uh, and the two often don't come together. Uh, that's one of the big challenges. So if I go to a finance ministry and say you people should be doing more on the human rights aspect, they'll look at me as though I'm an alien because that's not an issue that they uh, address. They don't deal with that. They think that I should be talking to someone else. But the same applies if I go and speak to the justice ministry or the attorney general's office or whoever uh, and say, look, the finance policies are really central because if you don't get a supportive environment there, you can't be moving forward on much of your agenda. They will look at me helplessly and say, but we have nothing to do with finance people. They won't even meet with us. So it's a big challenge to try to underscore the extent to which these two agendas um, depend upon one another. This sounds like the kind of role in which there's a real risk that you don't make many friends. In fact, in the IMF report, you mentioned that you had difficulty speaking with the World Bank, which you thought might be because you had previously written a report that was critical of the World Bank. So how do you respond to antagonism from states and other actors that think UN special rapporteurs are too political or simply misunderstand the context in which different actors are working? I think UN Special Rapporteurs have a very uh, special um, responsibility and a very special opportunity uh, to speak independently. Uh, rapporteurs are not beholden to any government or anyone else. Um, the principal constraint upon a rapporteur in terms of the analysis that we adopt and the positions we take uh, is our own credibility in an area or in a whole range of areas, including that of the role of the World Bank. There are really very few uh, critical voices. Uh, the bank is a dominant player. Uh, it's an elephant uh, in its own settings. Um, it's not easy for people to criticize. The bank itself is very good at ostracizing those who don't agree with it. Um, and my sense is that a special rapporteur's role is not to try to ingratiate himself or to try to replicate what the bank itself can do and is doing, but rather to make um, a constructive but um, 
independent uh, evaluation and try to bring about change. So it's far more likely to have an impact if it's done uh, from the outside. Uh, in other words, a genuinely independent and where appropriate uh, hard-hitting analysis of the shortcomings. Uh, in the case of the World Bank, uh, I continue to think that it's stunning that they say that we are the champions of development, but we can't, unfortunately, pay any attention to human rights. Those issues are outside our mandate. They are political, unlike the rest of what we do. Uh, and I think that's a deeply destructive approach. I don't think it helps the bank. I don't think it helps to promote its agenda. And I think it sends the message, which, of course, uh, quite a few governments are happy to receive, uh, that there's a fundamental distinction between development, which is somehow bizarrely not political, and human rights, which somehow bizarrely are entirely political. So what I've tried to do is to expose what I see as the uh, unsustainability of that uh, artificial distinction and try to encourage the bank to uh, move towards a more integrated approach. I'm happy to say that I think there are signs of movement now. The old rigidity, I think, is starting to uh, yield a little, uh, and there are important voices within the bank who recognize that a more integrated approach is desirable. So in your experience, economic development and human rights issues haven't been brought together effectively. So how can we do this better? How do we bridge the divide between development and human rights? Of, of course, the, the fault is not uh, all on one side. It never is in these sorts of areas. Um, I think both sides have to make a bigger effort to try to reach out and understand the preoccupations of the other. Uh, I think on the human rights side, some of the approaches, so-called human rights-based approaches to development, have been rather rigid, not particularly convincing, uh, over-claiming in terms of suggesting that every development issue can be uh, approached through an entirely human rights lens and that human rights will provide ready answers. That's clearly not the case. Uh, and so we need more sustained engagement uh, I think one of the problems uh, for the human rights side is that many uh, proponents don't really want to master the economic and broader dimensions of the subject. They will often be lawyers. They want to stay with the safety of specific international legal norms and they don't want to talk about things like fiscal consolidation or any other economic concepts that might actually be important. They don't want to get into the details of fiscal policy, of taxation and so on. And yet I think that if the human rights community is going to be able to speak more effectively in the years ahead to the development community, they have to learn that other language so the challenges exist on both sides. One important aspect of the SDGs is that they apply to developed and developing countries. And you visited both in your role as a special rapporteur. Are there differences in the nature or remedies for extreme poverty between developed and developing countries? Or are there more similarities than differences when it comes to poverty? 
I think that's a good question because the assumption of most people is that if you've got a rich country, it's quite easy to deal with poverty. If you've got a poor country, then, of course, they can't afford it. But the much deeper reality is uh, the unfortunate phrase, which is hard to avoid, uh, that of political will. Uh, in other words, if a government wants to address poverty, even wants to uh, eliminate it, uh, in almost every case, they could. Uh, but the reality is that many of them have no interest whatsoever. Uh, they are not uh, taken aback in the least by the fact that large numbers of their people live in extreme poverty. Uh, and it's not a priority. And even when there is a lot of money available, uh, they don't think that that money would be well spent by trying to lift people out of poverty. So that's a, a very, that's a similarity that uh, one finds equally in very poor and very rich countries. Why do states avoid taking a proactive approach to poverty reduction? It seems like the right thing to do. Well, I think a lot of it goes back to values, uh, to the extent that economic and social rights are not considered to be um, fully fledged rights. Um, you tend to uh, see human rights as relating to the more traditional political issues and not to bringing about a degree of uh, substantive equality um, a degree of dignity and decency for everyone in the society. Uh, so it's really a question of values. Um, how can we promote the idea that everyone does have equal human dignity and that a society should really be judged by the way in which the poorest members of the society live and are treated? Do the SDGs help at all in this area? Is it an advantage in any way that maybe they can help start conversations that would be touchy political issues? Yes, it's one of my concerns, of course, with the SDGs. Uh, I think that the, the great achievement of human rights is that particular values were brought in and ordained by the international community. Um, so the idea that torture was completely unthinkable, unacceptable, wasn't around uh, before World War II. Governments were free to do what they wanted to and people tended to look the other way. Uh, human rights brought in a value framework that by today says that can't be done, it's not acceptable. Uh, and that applies to a whole range of other issues. But the question is, how can we establish the value that allowing people to live in extreme poverty is unacceptable? That's just not something that a civilized community does to its own people. And I don't think we have yet established that as a fundamental value. And I'm not convinced that drawing up a large number of goals and targets as the SDGs uh, do can do that in itself in the absence of the basic push on values. And for me, that's why human rights are so important in this context and why it would have been good for the SDGs to have a more genuine uh, embrace 
of dignity and rights values as the foundation stone uh, for moving ahead on the specific goals and targets. Based on your experience studying and reporting on poverty over the past several years, is there anything that has surprised you or startled you, something you think people don't really get about poverty? Well, I, in, I think I increasingly see the detachment of the majority of people and certainly of elites uh, from poverty. Uh, they look down on poor people as though they're a different breed, a different race. Uh, they are dirty. They don't really want anything much to do with them. And the overriding assumption is that they've got only themselves to blame. Uh, they never see themselves in a poor person. Uh, and yet what I see is people who are brought up in poverty. Uh, I realize that if I was a kid in that situation, uh, even though I think I'm smart and clever and ambitious and all that other stuff, it would come to nothing if they, they were the sort of opportunities to which I was limited. I couldn't have escaped from the poverty that I very often see. I also come across a lot of people who are uh, who did once live normal middle class, if that's what you can call it, lives, and who have simply slipped uh, for one reason or another. It can be an illness, it can be uh, mental health, it can be being dragged down by family members and other demands. Uh, it can be a whole range of reasons, and the um, grasp on uh, sufficient income and a decent way of living is actually much more precarious than most of us who are in the elites really recognize. And so there isn't that sense of identity that poor people are us and we could be them. Uh, it's very much the distancing. That must be pretty disheartening. Well, it's a flaw in human nature, uh, but I like to think that it can be helped by education, that one can help to uh, demonstrate the basic humanity and the basic similarity uh, among us all. Uh, and I don't just mean that in a very general way, but I think you know poverty needs to be brought into the understanding of the elites who really don't encounter it. You know, polit most politicians that I come across have got nothing to do with poverty. They wouldn't know the sort of circumstances under which people lived if you ask them. So what are the main deprivations? What do you think your life would be like, minister, if you lived in this particular suburb? You know, what would be the main challenges? And I doubt that most ministers could give a real explanation of the sort of challenges that confront those people. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for taking the time to talk with me on this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. That's all right, Kira. My pleasure. Thanks for, uh, for doing the, uh, the podcast. Rights Up, Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This special series on the Sustainable Development Goals is supported by the British Academy. It's produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. 
Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.